Welcome to Unequal Worlds, an inequality research podcast produced by the Global Research Programme on Inequality and brought to you by the University of Bergen and International Science Council. In this podcast, we aim to explore and illuminate all aspects of global inequality and to investigate the possible ways of addressing these inequalities. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the second holiday bonus of Unequal Worlds. In this episode, we will hear a keynote session from this year's Southern African Nordic Center Conference. The Sarnod Conference was held digitally this year and hosted by the Western Norway University of Applied Sciences and the University of Bergen. The conference focused on how Sarnod partners can use and strengthen partnerships with the aim of meeting the needs of the UN 2030 agenda. The keynote we will hear now was given by Maria Paula Munezes and is titled Food as Knowledge Interconnecting the Global South. A perfect episode to listen to during these very food-heavy holidays. The session was chaired by GRIPS Executive Director Bjorn Engebertelsen and the discussion is Pamela Gupta. Please enjoy! to have Professor Maria Paula Meneshish to share her research on food as knowledge and how it interconnects the Global South. To moderate this session and to further introduce Professor Meneshish, we are pleased to have Professor Björn Bertelsen. Bertelsen holds a position as Professor in Social Anthropology at the University of Bergen, and he is the leader of GRIP the Global Research Programme on Inequality. He has also extensive experience from research in Southern Africa and particularly in Mozambique. Please, Bjorn, the word is yours. Thank you, uh, Elin, for that uh, kind introduction. And uh, good day, everyone. I think we've had an exceptionally rich first day of discussions and deliberations yesterday, and the lineup of exciting speakers today also bodes well, and also the discussions that we had before today. I have the great honor, and I mean honor, of moderating this keynote relating to the theme of epistemic challenges, intellectual labor, and South-North partnerships. The importance of this theme should be obvious to all. For there is a great need for everyone to fundamentally rethink knowledge regimes and epistemic traditions in both the Nordic countries and Southern Africa. Such a rethinking is, of course, not just necessitated by the many important, vocal, and varied calls for decolonizing curricula and our very institutions. But rethinking is also crucial in an age of Agenda 2030 and its SDGs, as well as the African Union's Agenda 2063, for that matter. These frameworks and many others pushes us to find new solutions and indeed new and novel modes of thinking, reflecting and thinking. I can think of no better way into this politically charged and intellectually challenging terrain than to listen to someone who straddles Africa, Europe, and the Indian Ocean in her wide-ranging thinking. It is therefore my great pleasure to host her, 
Professor Maria Paula Menezes, a Mozambican working in both Mozambique, Portugal, but also the entire world. Paula's keynote, which we will hear shortly, will be engaged by Professor Pamela Gupta from Weiser at the University of Witwatersrand. As Paula, also Pamela has worked extensively on the many and complex relations in the Indian Ocean, Portuguese colonial history, feminist perspectives and important interventions, and the whole question of decolonization. Again, I greatly look forward to this post-lunch discussion that will delve into epistemic, epistemic and cognitive justice, Portuguese colonial history, feminist great repositories of knowledge, and the whole question of decolonization. As I know, the lecture will, will deal extensively with food and the body. Please do try to savor the tastes and the smells of the food you have hopefully just eaten when listening to it. If you haven't had any food, remember the last good meal you had. I also want to ask participants to please engage the keynote and the discussion by posing your questions in the chat. Paula, the floor is yours and I greatly look forward to hearing your lecture. I'm very grateful for the invitation and the possibility to engage, even if through Zoom, in a stimulating, mutually enriching dialogue. Keynote lectures can be a major route for renewing the academic commitments to the understanding of humanity. So in this presentation, I'm trying to address food as epistemology with the aims of contributing to a broader debate on the interconnectedness of Africa with the world beyond the still overshadowing presence of colonial representations about the continent. I have to share with you that by my own trajectory with my academic training at taking place in the former Soviet Union and the USA, it became clear that educational projects proposed by these two countries, then part of the first and second world, shared similarities that enable us Africans to enter the academy on our own right with knowledges and experience that were not just data, but knowledge, thought and produced from other perspectives that need, did not fit completely the modern Western rational models. In short, we could move, but our ideas and knowledges remain hostage to colonial perspectives. In both contexts, together with African colleagues, we experience various episodes of cognitive injustice. For example, the imperial version of linear time insistently represents us, subjects of the South, as underdeveloped or being developed, a sophisticated expression for immature living in territories where concepts such as democracy, revolution, social and cognitive justice supposedly do not apply. And, and thus, to overcome the subissal thinking that separates us from the full humanity requires an epistemological shift in order to recover the idea that there are alternatives to the various crises we are facing, and it's important to recognize the barriers of potential alternative knowledge and ways of knowing. Thus, to overshadowing question structure my presentation. Can women's knowledge in the form of recipes generate alternative epistemic reflections, which are part of the network of knowledges that conforms the Indian Ocean and the broader world? Can these knowledges produce a more sophisticated image of context and historic narratives that extend far beyond the predominant colonial imaginary? These two questions, which I'll try to address here with you, 
and to contribute towards a broader question on how to humanize our knowledge, moving beyond the condition of cognitive injustice that characterizes still the global South. Indeed, does the notion of knowledge have the same meaning for all people in all cultural contexts? But before engaging with these two reckoning questions, I will share with you a critical overview of some of contemporary problems with knowledge production. The invention of the North as an exceptional center brought with it the invention of the peripheries. As Samira Min stressed long ago, the construction of African context as the periphery has to be seen as a political, epistemic and ontological exercise aiming specifically at generating an explicit definition of the geopolitical and epistemological space of the North as the center. In the African continent, seen from this very particular and local perspective, has in recent centuries been the symbol of the periphery of the world because underdeveloped and backward on the path of civilizing progress, whose reference were a product of the European modernity. I have nothing against this attempt of the Enlightenment in developing an interpretive framework of the world. Not at all. It's a local interpretation. My problem is when, based on this premise, modern scientific thought insists on imposing an abyssal fracture that divides the world between the global north with a supposedly universal value in terms of knowledge and the local south that is spaces whose knowledge supposedly only have local traditional value and this explanatory proposal of the world shows how the epistemic colonial project continues to function nowadays the ideas i'm sharing here with you require reflection about the very notion of universal knowledge. Here one, one has to be careful in distinguishing between universal and universality. The question of universality matters because Eurocentric philosophers have presumed since Plato that to know is completely translatable, meaning that there is a semantic prime common to all minds and all languages. However, if people have fundamental different intuitions about knowledge, as numerous academic research papers have suggested, then Eurocentric philosophy will have overlooked a significant abyss between cultures, including how cultures interact. And as scholars such as Michel Hof or Suleiman Bachidiang highlight, evidence against universally shared notion of knowledge would indicate that epistemology and Eurocentric epistemology in cognitive science is merely an exercise in the way the Global North talks about knowledge and not an enterprise in discovering the foundation or coherent methods for having justified true beliefs. To think about the world requires to study it as it exists, rooted in particular contexts, evocative of multiple layers of sensibilities, cultural and knowledge assumptions, and localized political choices. This brings us to the question about academia as the university, especially the modern university, is not a product of the Eurocentric modernity. I come from a continent where some of the oldest universities emerged. They are part of a universal legacy that is fundamental to acknowledge is that if we are serious about democratizing democracy, we have to broaden our dialogue. Along this line, Suleiman Bashir Diagne mobilizes a distinction that I think is fundamental for our reflection between two types of universals that are present in the way we understand modern academia. 
a verticalized universal, polarized, and the lateral universal of center, horizontal universal. The first defines an apprehension of particularity from a position of centrality that aims never to be contested. The second is conceived as a journey between persons and communities without absolute points of reference from which they are judged and evaluated. Thus, if you look at Athens, Paris, Baghdad, Fest in Book 2, we'll see them as areas of philosophical reasoning where universes of multiple references are connected, drawing together intellectual and plural traditions. These movements of debate, transfer and translation are not linear, they are intertwined, they cross seas and continents, complicating the roles and implications of the academy. The greater colonial division between the humanity of the Logur and Anthropos fits the distinction between imperial language of civilization, modern science, and indigenous language that expressed the incommensurability of ways of knowing. The challenge to think from the global south calls for the recognition of the plurality of epistemic aspiration. It is therefore an epistemological rather than a geographical self, consisting of multiple epistemologies produced when and where useful experiences are generated in different cultural, historical, political and social contexts. By occupying epistemology, oppressed and silenced social groups, those who do not count as humans and whose knowledge are not valid according to Northern thinking, can claim their humanity by representing the world as they own and in their own terms. This is the big question we have on the table. This epistemic struggle is a struggle to overstep the colonial library as addressed by Valentin Budim. The text in colonial library is still dominant corpus of interpretation of African continent in circulation, represent a whole body of knowledge aimed at translating and deciphering the African object in order to dominate it. Through the close links between existence, knowledge and power across the Indian Ocean, many women who are responsible for the survival of their families and communities on a daily basis were and continue to be dehumanized and transformed into objects, bodies without knowledges and big discussions about the levels, multiple levels of violence in order Mozambique are a good example. Identifying the contemporary abyssal lines and the line power knowledge existent relations is fundamental to overcoming relations based on silencing and subalternation, and at the same time to enable the radical co-presence of human beings and their forms of knowledge. The sense of belonging to places through tastes allows different sensory and affective connections to be forged. An approach through an ecology of tastes enables us to rediscover bridges between the known and the silence, the familiar and the strange, ensuring the re-existence of women in the struggles against oppression. This knowledge, in my view, are fundamental to the elaboration of an alternative way of thinking about alternatives, helping to consolidate proposal that reinforce post-abyssal epistemologies. This part of my presentation takes up the challenge of the epistemology of the South developed by Boaventura de Souza Sancho in an attempt to understand all food, invoking other histories, cultural contacts and processes, enables other ontologies to emerge in the construction of networks of knowledge through the struggles of women, daily struggles. 
daily life in the coastal area of Mozambique have taught me a lot about the importance of networks of connections, travels, trading, family connections, and religious pilgrimage, integrate the people of the Indian Ocean, bringing together knowledges and tastes, helping to consolidate communities. However, seeing from the north, the web unravels, replaced by links between the colonizing centers and their former colonies. Thus, we insist quite often, especially being here in Europe, in listening to the Lusophone Africa, the Francophone Africa, the Anglo Anglophonic Africa. This is still the remnants of colonial experiences. To take seriously the provincialization of history of the world as suggested by Dipesh Chakrabarti requires rethinking the relations between the spaces which shape cultures and the areas of contacts between them, in addition to the narrative stored in the colonial archives. This questioning of colonialism assumes that it's not a finished past, but contemporary metamorphosed reality that still informs and defines our present. On the basis of this premise, I think it's possible to imagine a network of other histories signaling continuities and transformations within relations based on power and knowledge. However, in my view, these interpretations do not consider how food and taste also travel, a characteristic feature of knowledge encounter in this ocean area. Whether in Mozambique, part of Eastern Africa, or in India, in the markets, at street food stalls, in kitchens, at, at the ends of women, I began to understand how product, products are transformed into culture, an experience filled with aromas, tastes, te textures, and affections. Following a Padurai suggestion, I came to understand the social life of these objects. And cookery lessons taught me that educating the senses is radically empirical, bringing new dimensions to the meaning of humanity. They challenged the visceral thinking beyond the vision-earing binary of the primary faculty of understanding the world. By demonumentalizing the written text, this conversation problematized the hegemony of scientific rationality. In preparing food, using the kitchen as a laboratory of knowledge and flavors, the senses of smell, taste, and touch become central, although they are dismissed in modern thinking, since they are threatened abstract in the impersonal regime of modernity by virtue of their radical interiority, boundary transgressing propensities, and emotional potency they bear in themselves. In a world in which women and their knowledge of culinary skills and food are still represented as absent due to the very unequal power relations, redeeming them is, in my view, an imminent political act. It's an exercise in cognitive justice. Studying food and knowledge involved in its preparation in a dynamic way, circulating between different contexts, helps us to understand the biographical trajectories and meaning linked to the use of particular objects that become part of our food. Through the social history of food and those who prepare it, I think it's possible to recover networks of reciprocity and solidarity and to rediscover knowledge and histories that have been silenced and subalternized. In the archival material I've been consulting, the description of intellectually active urban areas such as the island of Mozambique, Zanzibar, Mombasa, Cairo, Mumbai, and Goa, these places are described as cosmopolitan zones of contact for the transcontinental cultural circuits. Attending to the importance of the foods 
This account emphasizes the art of hospitality and the care in the region. The sensuous description of the food convey an image of Mozambique as part of the Indian Ocean world. However, to parallel process would alter this image. On one side, intensifying European bourgeois revolutions, and on the other side, the modern colonial conquest, particularly from the 18th centuries onwards. In the Indian Ocean region, the colonial projects would be imposed on the basis, as Laporte underlines, of three civilizational references, IGN, order, and beauty. And these three civilizational references were fundamental to legitimize the metropolitan colonial order. Within this triad, which was the product of capitalist, sexist, and colonial environment of those times, other smell and flavors were considered to belong to inferior people who had been relegated to the status of subaltern authority. In the modern rationale, feeling the pulse of the world through vision combines towards preserving power relations that silence knowledge and the presence of women involved in the struggle for social and cognitive justice, thus preventing any dialogue with other imaginaries of another possible world. The epistemic violence involved the radical exclusion of sensory experience from modern thinking as translated into ontological violence, transforming these women into subaltern, silenced non-beings and serving as an example of the impossibility of co-presence on both sides of this abyssal line. Indeed, preparing a dish involves learning in the kitchen, which are indeed a prime source lab. In Mozambique, as in other parts of the world, cookery is performative. The cook, the family, their friends and other guests take part in the act, producing the food, eating, commenting on the quality of the dishes, and appreciating the food. In this region of the world, the kitchen is the women's domain and they control the laboratories, as I learned from the countless meetings and conversations I attended. When preparing food in kitchens, knowledge is appropriated and incorporated through practical experiences. This was experience when preparing curry on the island of Mozambique. In her discussion of thoughtful practice of food preparation, Lisa helped refers to culinary knowledge as corporeal knowledge, pointing out that it is a matter of factual awareness, but itself experience through the body. The recognition that knowledge does not lie in the mind, but is practiced and experienced through the various senses involved in the preparation of food was evident and became evident for any of you as experienced food preparation and tasting of food, being it Mozambique, South Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, or India. In parallel, the research I've been carrying out pointed out that cookery in any kind is based on a grammar of knowledges that is quite frequently expressed orally. The recipes transmitted through everyday practices express history and cultural encounters, reflecting lived experience and situated struggles. Cooking is a way of knowing and being, as I learned from the Bajir, also known as Akara or Akaraje, that are these little fried snacks, a popular breakfast meal made with brown or black hide beans and other spices. In Maputo, the Bajia sellers share stories of struggle that are similar to those of women I spoke to in Goa, in India. Bajias are a vital source of income for many families, as my work with Maputo Bajia sellers revealed. 
prefer Mozambique became independent in 1975, but Gs were the food of the black working class. They, it was a food staple that belonged to the black suburbs. As with other aspects of everyday life, food was affected by the revolutionary project. In the years after independence, Bajis were in short supply. There were a number of reasons for this. The growing demand due to the greater purchasing power of the population, the bloc mounted by apartheid South Africa and then Rhodesia, and the political changes in the country, which included the nationalization of land and various agriculture companies whose owners had fled the country. The result was a shortage of food supplies and the arrival of other types of or other types of food, such as bajiers, to the city center, to the cement city that was being reshaped. In other words, the lack of food and ingredients not only affected the ability of people to prepare traditional dishes, but also the way in which the Mozambicans understood food as a marker of identity. As this, as the conversations I had with these women emphasized, food reveals sensory, temporal and special qualities that transform it into an essential comp component of cultural systems. In the same way, Bajias as street food show how changes in what people eat and where they eat it, I'm talking about the street, constitute the main ground for claiming the space. The streets of the cement city of Maputo are being occupied by subaltern knowledge and tastes that have come from the outskirts of the city. Touching and tasting in depth are two forms of immediate contact that allow for a relational understanding of intimacy and the body, providing, in my view, a grammar for the most intimate forms of being and knowing. While grating great the coconut and grinding up the spices, the smell, taste and sensation of the texture of the mixture taught me about the use of the body as a sensory organ, as a measure of the quality of the paste, part of the cookery experience, combining local cosmopolitan perspectives. In Goa, people often eat with their fingers. In various shared meals I was invited to, I felt that cutlery was set on the table in, def in deference to me. With curiosity, people expected to see if I knew how to eat with my fingers. The sect was preceded, as in Mozambique, by hygiene ritual, which brings me close to the food I eat. When using fingers, there is no separation between me and the food. The fingers learn how to package the food to combine textures and tastes before delivering them to the mouth. And at the end of the, the, the meal, as a sign of appreciation, we have to lick our fingers. So this is a sensuous experience. So how can we revive the literal taste and sensory corporeal experience to understand ontologically and epistemologically the diversity of the world? One of the key ideas in the epistemology of the South is that the understanding of the world extends far beyond the Eurocentric understanding of the world. For a long time, European philosophy has denied any aesthetic legitimacy to experience it with a tongue although it speculates on taste in general. In separating the eye from the world, sight creates this illusion of a literally autonomous rational faculty. Associated with this hierarchical dissociation is the idea that the distance between the one who knows and the object that is perceived 
reflects a cognitive, moral, and aesthetic adventure as Horsemeyer has underlined. The other senses are seen as too close and incapable of establishing the necessary analytical distance from the object of perception. Gradually, knowledge has ceased to be understood as embodied, with modern science conceiving of senses as indispensable but unthirstworthy vehicles for understanding the world, which is controlled by reason through that binomial relationship of sight and listening. In the sense, one has to acknowledge that aesthetic emerged as the discursive field in European philosophy in the 18th century, when it was claimed that literal taste was unconscious, subjective, and far too intimate for any rational output. However, this consensus has no longer any legitimate basis. Thinking in terms of the self and of the body that are reclaiming knowledge and power, it can be seen that knowledge is no longer possible without corporeal experiences, which are unsinkable without senses and sensations. Merleau-Ponty, a couple of decades ago, pointed out that to a large extent, we have unlearned what it means to think as a body. It is through our senses that we know and consume the world and become part of it. In terms of food, although the natural environment influences the tastes, it is the cultural aspect, the preparation of food that creates the flavor of place which is embodied in the relationship between food and eating together at meal times. The taste and aromas of food, which is a way of making direct contact with the outside world, is also a way of interpreting reality. The actual way of cooking and the act of sharing food creates a set of cultural hierarchies and even exclusions. As Boaventura de Souza Santos points out, overcoming any case of abyssal exclusion involves experiencing mutuality, feeling the world by being aware of its symmetries and urgent need for, recipro for reciprocity. By failing to recognize other ways of sensing the world in contexts which have experienced and still continue to experience the epistemic violence that marks our times, the exclusion or subalternization of other senses it continues to reproduce hegemonic power relations that reshape abyssal exclusions. Reason experienced through emotions require other approach to being, living, and experiencing the world. The rationale of epistemology of the self emerges when we live together, eating and savoring, tempering conversations on knowledge while savoring affection. I end with the world with words of Grandmother Nzima in Mia Kurt's book. Cooking, says Grandmother Nzima, is the most private and riskiest, riskiest act. You can put tenderness or hatred into food. You can pour flavoring or poison into the pan. Who would be responsible for the purity of the sieve or the pestle? How could I leave this intimate task in the hands of some anonymous person? Unsinkable, never in my life, subjecting yourself to a cook who had never seen. Cooking isn't a job. Cooking is a way of loving others. Cooking, I would say, is a way of caring with the, about the others. Through recipes, we can step beyond any colonial representations that denies the contribution of the women of the South. In recipes, we can listen to the struggles and reconstruction of archives of knowledge, witness and experience by women, within the circuits of colonial violence, 
trade relations in the diaspora. The knowledge which recipes reveal through the voice of those who prepare them is both profoundly local and at the same time as universal dimension to the, due to the nature of the thematic and ingredients. It is a situated knowledge experienced intensively through the smell, tastes and tenderness that clearly cannot be captured in writing. It is knowledge that is powerful enough to strengthen social struggles because it enables reasons unknown to cold reasoning to be created, warm reasons that nurture the struggles and mobilize the sense of solidarity. In helping to recover histories of non-beings, of subalternized and silenced voices, these oral archives reconfigure the re-existence of this so diverse self, confronted with countless attempts at annihilation in the form of genocide, slavery, Patriar patriarchalism, colonization, and the eradication of cultural memories. By including women as the full subject in the areas in which they are active, we increase the possibility of challenging the hegemony of modern scientific knowledge. In studying the diverse food context throughout the world, it's possible to identify local alternatives, the concrete, specific utopias for innovation and sustainability that are emerging. The challenge is to give them credibility by making them better known, decolonizing our imagination and expanding the cognitive chest. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paula, for that critical and very stimulating and provocative lecture. You've literally given us food for thought and critical food for thought at that. I really appreciate the, um, the urgency in your call for us to listen to, or, or for us not just to listen to, but also to recognize alternative modes of uh, knowing and knowledge. Um, this is hugely important, I think. I would now like to give the floor to Professor Pramila Gupta, who will help us untangle, engage, perhaps provocatively, uh, the lecture by, by Paula. Pamela, the floor is yours, please. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you, Juan, for inviting me to take part in this discussion. And I hope I hope you'll find some of my comments productive, provocative um, along those lines. So, OK, so first, I, what I thought I would do is um, I would I was going to group my comments into sort of three sets of thematics. Um, and before I do that, though, I wanted to just convey my appreciation of Professor Menezes lecture as well as as the tone and this is a point I'm going to come back to but the um, both the epistemological focus as well as the tone of conviviality that she conveyed in, in her talk and I'm going to return to that in my third sets of comments so um, with that I'm going to start so um, okay so my first set of comments are around this around ideas of the global south and how we define the global south and this idea of provincializing Europe um, and you, you made a, a really provocative comment about the sort of the global South is less about a geographic self and more about an epistemic self. And I wanted you to say a little bit more on that and the ways in which um, you bring up decolonial de knowledge making, overcoming this idea of cognitive injustice um, and this colonial library of knowledge that we're all faced with as researchers. Um, so on the one hand, you say you're, it's about your own positionality, being Mozambican, Portuguese, um, your training in the U.S. and the former USSR, um, 
And so I wanted you to push you a little bit more to say about your own critical lens and your own politics of location. And, I, and I've written quite a bit around the, the idea of the global south as both being a map, a counter map, and a radical geography. And it made me think about my own politics of location, being American, trained in the U.S., but having been based in the South African Academy for the last 15 years. So it's just sort of a general question around epistemic knowledge making production the politics of location and where where that fits in and I think your, your talk beautifully illustrates that so I wanted you to perhaps just say more on that um, and and what those contradictions are in terms of your own training life experiences the role of the sensory and how that overcomes the epistemic or doesn't in some ways okay um, my second set of comments is really about the role of the university. And I thought particularly during this crisis moment of the pandemic, which has raised so many issues or specters around student enrollments, what kind of funding we're reliant on, tuition costs, pedagogy online versus um, in presence. And, and to link the university then to concepts around what you so beautifully made the distinction between the universal and the universality. And I thought that would, could be a productive point to come in and where the university fits. And, and you know, playing with etymologies, obviously, as well, in terms of thinking about the universe and, and all of those. Um, so that was my, my second area. And then my last one was really to, to focus in on food and your beautiful sort of discussion around food as epistemology and and women's recipes. And I found that discussion particularly enriching, um, particularly also because I've been working a little bit on recipes from Goa. Um, but I wanted you to say more around sort of where, one, where food fits in these civilizational references of hygiene, um, beauty, and, um, sorry, I can't read my own handwriting, order, um, where food fits within those, those three categories, because you had made a comment around the sensorial being sort of outside colonialism. So I wanted you to, to say a little bit more on that. Um, and I thought what was really wonderful is, again, we share this, this sort of Indian Ocean Network world of food and travel and mobility, and you beautifully laid that out. And I wanted to push you again to say more on the culinary is corporeal. Um, and so you said you were interested in sort of reciprocity and solidarity and, you know, ideas of where we eat, what we eat, how we eat, which I thought was really wonderful. Um, and I wanted you to push you to say more to go from reciprocity and solidarity to perhaps conviviality and hospitality. And where does that get you if you move a little bit analytically in a slightly sideways direction? So I was thinking of Aline Smith's beautiful work on the guest and the host. And uh, I have a colleague at the UCT, Francis Nyomjo, who's written really beautifully about the ethics of conviviality. And I really thought your talk in itself was about the ethics of conviviality. So I wanted to say more about what, if you could say more on food as sort of embodying this ethics of, of conviviality and mutuality, which you bring up so beautifully. Um, and then just the last point on this is recipes as, as archives. Um, and Maybe you had mentioned sort of using recipes to think through grammars. I want you to push you to think more about. So what you did with food, can we do that same sort of analytic move with the recipes and where they're located, how we find them, how we recover them? Um, are they discussed at the dinner table? Where where do we, how, what's the kind of, are they handwritten? Are they typed out? Those kinds of grammar, de gram grammatical details to recipes to create the sort of richer archive of recipes of the Indian Ocean. And then again, just to bring in this idea of, I love this idea of trusting your cook. Um, and that made me really think about, you know, 
what what kinds of trust are in cooking. And I think there's a lot more to be said on that. Um, and then again, the oral versus the written in terms of the recipes, um, where that fits in and this idea of the kitchen as a laboratory. Um, and that just returned me then to the affect or tone of your beautiful talk, which is really about politics and mutuality and, and conviviality. So I want to thank you for that. And um, I'll leave it there. I'll hand it over. Thank you very much, uh, Pamela. Very stimulating uh, questions, and uh, and uh, also I want to thank you for for really engaging uh, Paula's uh, keynote uh, lecture. Uh, before I give the floor back to you, Paula, to to respond to some of these uh, questions, I want to remind the audience, our digital participants as well, to post their questions and comments and perhaps even attacks in in the chat function, and I'll try to convey them. But for now, uh, Paula. Uh, please, if you would like to respond. Above all, thank you, Bjorn, for the challenge you posed me. And I thought we needed to think outside the box. And as you said, to tackle the question of epistemology from a location that it's a moving location. And I think uh, and I really thank Pamela for the wonderful comment, very sensible, around lots of questions. And I think this talk is more about a, an engaging conversation so that we can keep working on this uh, ways of producing knowledge that in a sense, if I move very far back, uh, it's more, I, I look at knowledge production more in a sense like what we would call the Platonic or Socratic schools where we would talk about and less about this sort of mechanical approach where I see this is the syllabus you are supposed. So we limit the capacity of the other who I'm trying to train as someone like myself and I'm trying to make a copycat of myself. So I, I'm a bit uh, in these times of crisis because I had to deal in, I'm just going to comment on Pamela's second comment about university. I had very weird uh, experiences. Uh, being in Europe quite often, um, the students wanted to be in class and we couldn't be in class. And then they'll move home. I will be in the classroom by myself teaching to a flat screen and they'll be somewhere else which was really weird. But what was also challenging was to be teaching in Maputo. I was teaching uh, a course for the pedagogic university. I never saw their faces because of the, uh, the, the, the band is very narrow. They were all spread around the country. So at the end, I told them, if I ever met you at the street, I know your voice. And it was funny because halfway through, they'll be talking and say, no, come on, you are not supposed to say so because we were really engaged in a conversation. But it was a means that made sense and approached me because I was teaching late because it was the only time I had. Uh, one of them had the wife sick, so we'll be with him and his wife in the hospital teaching. So there was this sense of proximity, of a broader solidarity that made me feel closer to them. Of course, they were PhD students, but they dared them to, at the end, to ask me more personal questions about how I was dealing with the, the pandemics, which were the problems. So in that sense, maybe because we never saw each other, but we understood that we were in this together, uh, somehow through the voices and the criticisms around the voice, but 
the wish to continue with something that would make sense of our lives. We manage to get together and sometimes to have this very interesting interactions. So I'm not very sure about, uh, of course, I would never accept to be permanently giving classes online because that's another project. Uh, it's another way of teaching, but still, uh, I managed to reach students that were all over the country, from Nyasa until Maputo, uh, sharing books with them, sharing articles, uh, forbid, well, things that you are not supposed to share, but at those times, everything, all the archives were open, and we managed to do that. So there were interesting things to do. But now getting to your, very quickly, to three or four comments that I found very interesting uh, in, your, in your comment. Um, the politics of location require from us a very careful, um, as Gertz would say, very dense description, where do we speak from? Because in most of cases they were saying, I'm a Mozambican working in Portugal and anytime I arrive at a place to speak, I have to explain who I am. So there is this charge that, wow, why? is a Mozambican going to talk about so-and-so, especially in the countries um, that were really um, imperial powers. And they have this very difficult representation about otherness. I can speak about, I can talk about Mozambique, but how dare you talk about something out of your scope? So this question of location, it's about traveling, it's about moving, it's about talking, it's about not knowing, and that is something that I think I was listening to myself, it was a sort of very strange, but I, 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 I miss telling that one of the key conditions to learn is to recognize I'm ignorant, and I want to learn, I'm curious, but curious in the good sense, I want to know, tell me, and to, in a sense, to expose what I don't know, and why I'm so interested in that. And that is food. Food is the, the means of conviviality, of proximity. Uh, we who do field well, work uh, at a small scale, because it's anthropology, it's very interesting that once you get invited into a kitchen, you know you became an intimate person, that you can ask already a certain level of questions. If you are invited to talk in the back of the house or in the main living, like the stage for the guests, which are the first living, the living room. I know it's a very cold, it's a proximity. So these are details that I think we need to explore more. How do we approach the other as the closeness? In my experience in Goa, when I was once in Panjim, um, I used to go to the market to buy vegetables and to discuss with people what they were for, because some of them all know from a put, others not. And one day, one of the women invited me, said, well, would you like to come to my house and have lunch and I'll cook for you to explain. And I said, sure, no problem. And when I talked to a colleague that I was going to have lunch with her and then I could not make another appointment, he told me, but she's a Dalit. And I said, so what? Um, but you know you are going to be tainted for a while because people are going to say that you are going to eat with an untouchable. And I, I, I noticed when I arrived 
And that was the most sensible thing. I was the only person who was given a plate that could be reused by other people. So it was like, we trust you, we know you. And those are the moments, you know, you can't trust a person. So this was three, six or seven months later, uh, I was coming, you know, go Panjin library. I was coming out of the library. It was one of my last days. And I got arrested by a man from the library until the bus station, which is probably like 10 minutes walk. But I was really upset because I was alone. There was no one else. And when I entered the bus station, there is a stall where people sell food and she was there. Um, and she understood. It was very difficult to talk because I don't speak company. I understand a little bit, but she understood I was being arrested. And all of a sudden, seven women stood up and beat the hell out of this guy. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to jail two days before I'm going home and what is going on? And then I had to be lectured by the police that there is a number we should call, blah, 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 blah. But suddenly I felt solidarity and the solidarity networks had been established because of all these conversations. And that's what she told the police. She talks to us. She's our friend. She cares whenever she asks what is the best bananas to buy. She, the first thing she asks is, how are you? So there are these small things that I think is ethics of good behavior that our parents teach us that I think we need to learn to address people like equals and tell, and that I would tell her quite often, I'm interested in food because of so and so and so. And I really learned a lot from them. They probably didn't learn very much from me. What I learned from them was in Mangas. And especially I understood looking at the foods. And this is a paper I'm trying to publish once I'm done with the bureaucratic uh, position. It says how much of this food travels around the Indian Ocean. So I was in Panjin and people asked me, how oh, come you know so many words from Konkani and you don't speak Konkani? And I said, because these are words we use. So those were the ties that if you look at Mozambique and you seek to analyze Mozambique, because it was a Portuguese colony and we were supposed to be understood through the, the, the analytical model of Portuguese colonialism, it doesn't work. So that, that were the lessons of being part of another cult other cultural systems that if you focus on the colonial project, which is not over, obviously, but I can talk about it. I think there is a question about it. Thank you very much, uh, Paula. I think you've really now, also in your response to Pamela's very incisive and helpful questions, you've really shown us how you can also work methodologically and how you can uh, engage the world and its many contexts in, in uh, in a manner to expand mm -hmm. our epistemic sensibility as well. I have two questions and we don't have that much time. We have around um, eight minutes left, so I'll be quite brief. Um, one question that we've received from in the chat is from Maria Ulveseter. She asks, thank you both uh, Paula and Pamela for this very engaging discussion. Paula, can you elaborate a bit on how, and I think she quotes you from uh, your lecture, Quote, colonialism as a not finished past, but ongoing metamorphosis. Yeah. How does this, I mean, if we are to believe this, and, and I do, and I think you do as well, colonialism is not a, a project of the past. How does recognizing this affect, for instance, north-south, south-north partnerships as in the Sarnod context? Uh, 
And the other question, if I can post that at the same time, um, is that you say in your in your uh, lecture, uh, ch the challenge of thinking from the global south entails calls for recognition of a plurality of epistemic aspiration. And I'm very intrigued by your notion of aspiration. It's an aspiration to a measure of, of humanity, uh, the size of the world, yeah, to paraphrase someone. Uh, and we're used to thinking about epistemologies as ordered, as well-policed, as, uh, as, uh, as quite rigid uh, systems of knowledge. What does an opening of an epistemology to epistemic aspiration mean? How does it mean, for instance, that we have to valorize imagination, religious orders, etc.? Uh, and what does it imply for research and politics? These are huge questions, of course, but if you can spend the last five minutes uh, responding to this, this would be great. Okay, thank you very much for the, the two questions, which are very good. Very quickly, um, I we, we need to address colonialism, not as a political presence, because in most cases, this, the, this has been overstepped, but we still have cases like Western Sahara and the problem of um, with Morocco, and there are other cases in the world. So uh, we still have the problem of geopolitical belonging as a key question to be addressed. There are also the questions in Western Papua. So the, the, the committee of 24 at the United Nations still keeps working on these questions of territories that have been claiming the right for self-determination. And self-determination is above all, and I'm now quoting Emilcar Cabral, the right to think from our own heads, from the roots we belong to, and our belonging to the world. And this is a double sword. First of all, it's the question of recognizing our knowledges as we value, not local value, but global value. The second part is to recognize that lots of questions that we think are part of the Enlightenment, and thus we assume they are Europeans, they are not. Let's talk about numbers. Numbers are fundamental for us to be here because they are at the core of algorithms we use to produce the interaction via Zoom. A zero is a notion that's totally oblivious to Europe. There are three civilizations in the world that have developed zero. None of them is European. So we need to learn those questions and bring them to the table and say, when you are talking about world knowledge, it's indeed world knowledge. And how much do I know about this knowledge? Because as we were, I was commenting regarding Pamela, it's quite complicated whenever I enter a, a discussion because people, we know a lot about France, about US, about certain parts of Europe, not that much about Northern countries, but we know nothing about Mozambique. So if you want to engage in a, a dialogical, democratic dialogue, it will never occur because I am talking from a position, an imperial position, because I know much more, and the other persons are not being able to engage. So, in that sense, I think these meetings like these are very important to people to get this awareness that we need to co-produce knowledge with each other and not about each other. And this takes me to the second level. It's the level of responsibility because whatever I do as a researcher, I have to take responsibility for what I write because lots of the things we write are going to be used, especially in the European context, for policy reforms regarding our countries. 
And I have to assume that whatever it's written there, it's my decision. My question is, how dare people that only spend two weeks in Mozambique write 600 page reports that about realities that are totally oblivious and worse, they don't speak the language. So it's this nested level of erasure of knowledge that is at the core of colonialism. Colonialism is the negation of otherness, of the languages of complexity. So we keep reproducing invisibility uh, regarding our context. And that's where I, I'm not against Hegel uh, or Kant because we have to study them in order to criticize them, but we have to add other names. And that is the form that I was talking dialogical. I, I wish we could speak more among ourselves and less to expose like, a, I'm sorry for the 25 minutes I took uh, speaking about some of my position, but I think it would be, it'd be much more interesting if the, all of us would be talking around, uh, around us, posing questions and just fluidly go, go instead of having this very organized, very academic stream of consciousness that sometimes doesn't allow us to sink to the sides. And I think epistemology is to sink to the side and not in this very mechanical, structured way that limits our capacity of imagining a, a possible future. I'm not quoting, as uh, Frelimus called, the better future, a possible future, better future. I don't know if I answered the question in time. Uh, <laughs> you did. And temporality is, of course, another horrible invention uh, and linear temporality as well. But we do have to conform to it and we do need to draw this very interesting discussion to a close. I wish we would have much more time. We have had much more time to engage Pamela again. We would have time to taste bajias from Maputo, which I also long for. But I wish to thank you both, uh, Pamela and Paula, for extremely interesting and thought-provoking interventions. I also hope that the, your call for an openness to other forms of the epistemic is something that we can bring with us in the rest of the conference and that we can continue to discuss also in the framework of the Sarnot conference. So thank you again, both of you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to follow Grit on social media and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Links to these, as well as for research mentioned in this episode, can be found in the show notes. This podcast was produced by the Global Research Program on Inequality and brought to you by the University of Bergen and the International Science Council. And thank you for listening.